Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and now heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, Nate and Brooks Long discuss the autobiography of the legendary R&B producer Jerry Wexler, co-written by David Ritz. Email us at LetItRollPodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and once again, I'm joined by Brooks Long to continue what we're kind of informally calling the David Ritz Book Club with a discussion of Rhythm and the Blues, A Life in American Music by Jerry Wexler and David Bro- David Ritz, David Brooks. Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back, Brooks. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Yeah, there is a David Brooks. I don't I don't think he probably knows a whole lot about Atlantic Records. <laughs> I, hope I not. could be very wrong. <laughs> Gives me a headache just to think about David Brooks. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but Jerry Wexler, a storied life in American music, one of the two main forces behind Atlantic Records, incredible run from the 50s well into the 70s. And also the villain in a number of stories we uh, that we have talked about and let it roll various times. The villain in the Rick Hall Muscle Shoals story, the villain in the Stax Records Jim Stewart story, the villain in the Burt Burns story, the vil- a villain in the Libra and Stoller story. Very interesting to get his side of the stories. Oh, definitely, definitely, yeah. Um, I I thoroughly enjoyed this book and on your suggestion I, I checked out the Burt Burns documentary and the um the Muscle Shoals documentary and uh what can I say people <laughs> people have their their own ideas of themselves I guess <laughs> um but uh yeah I I don't there's no such thing as an uncomplicated man in show business <laughs> That's for sure. But Wexler is one of these people, one of the great record men of all time, definitely loved the music, absolutely took a creative role and made positive things happen. I mean, as responsible for Aretha Franklin's success as anybody except Aretha Franklin. Um, yeah. And and right up there with Ahmet Erdogan, empowering Atlantic's amazing, amazing run in the 50s, 60s, and into the 70s. But... um. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, you, you you can't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs, and and Wexler definitely <laughs> <laughs> wasn't shy about that. But the man loved his omelets. <laughs> that he did. That he did, and he loved money. There's a great quote in there um, about the Atlantic ethos, and he he talks about some of the labels that they not really even were competing against because he was talking about labels like Vanguard or Blue Note that were, quote, doing the Lord's work. But Wexler said, Amit and I, we weren't looking for canonization. We lusted for hits. And boy, did they land them. Yeah, yeah, uh, for sure, for sure. They were they were definitely in that lane. It's so it's so fascinating to me that uh it it seems like they came from the first generation of like music nerds of yeah. uh, of like record nerds anyway and um they just like knew the ins and outs of of all these different uh bands and they were you know on they were so hip to the bop scene and all that but when it came down to it when it came down to their own record company uh they were not above uh above the trends definitely not definitely not they followed what sold and kept their ear to the ground and had a whole network national network of djs and promo guys that were letting them know what was selling printing 
press guys, contacts at printing presses that would tell him when some tiny little independent was suddenly printing up a whole bunch of a single so that Atlantic could swoop in. But let's let's zero in on Jerry's life story and start. Um, you know, he's from New York City, Washington Heights, Jewish kid. Uh, parents uh, were immigrants. Uh, his dad was a window washer. And, um, you know, the classics were a hard bit in early 20th century life. His mother was was a very artistic, beautiful woman who made life pretty hard for his dad. <laughs> Seems that way. Yeah, but he was, like you said, one of the first generation of record nerds. And these kid were in, the kids were into hot jazz. They were collecting 78s. They were scouring the city, looking for, for jazz 78s. And they had to invent all this stuff from scratch. There's really no concept of fandom in the 1920s and 1930s. They had to invent it. And so, you know, people are self-publishing discographies hanging out in record stores and talking about that stuff. And definitely Wexler is what you would call a swing kid. I mean, he he pulled over and cried in the 70s when he heard on the radio that Bing Crosby died and just, um, you know, had a deep love for these guys. He hung out at Mick Gab- Milt Gab- Gabler's uh, Commodore record store. Gabler later, later became a famous record producer himself, friends with John Hammond, another record legend. And it's interesting, uh, Wexler had one of these sort of prodigal son lifestyles where he failed at everything before he finally got it together and went to college and kind of got saved by World War II and that he, um, after World War II and service avoided combat, but served in the army. Then he gets jobs in, in the music business, starts out at Broadcast Music Inc., BMI, which was the alternative publishing collector to ASCAP, and um, then got a job at Billboard working under Paul Ackerman. And Wexler's the guy who coined the term rhythm and blues to replace race records. Uh, much better coinage. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I'd say so. It's it's amazing how much that has stuck over the years. And, and Wexler's very proud that, that it, uh, it stuck too. Um, but yeah, it's gone. It's become like uh, urban and uh, soul. And uh, just I think at one time it was just called the black charts or something like that. Uh, but it always comes back to rhythm and blues. And, uh, you know, if you listen to what's considered rhythm and blues today, it doesn't sound uh, very much the same as Louis Jordan. But in some ways, it does feel the same. Um, and it has similar, like, philosophical approaches. It really, in that, in certain ways, hasn't changed. Yeah, essentially, it's just a term for black American pop music. And it was always a broad banner. But it's interesting reading this book, because Wexler, when he talks about when there's excerpts of his writing from the 40s and 50s, and he's talking about what we would now call the rhythm and blues scene, he sees it as an extension of the 1920s blues scene. He sees people like Ruth Brown and Laverne Baker as just heirs of Bessie Smith and Mamie Smith and, and Ma Rainey and other blues singers of the 20s. So it's interesting to me that he sees that cont- continuity there through the whole thing. But, you know, after he worked at Billboard for a while, then he gets a job with MGM's song publishing arm. And there's a big disconnect between the music he's into and the stuff he's doing to make money. Um, but let's hear our first record and then we'll go on and talk about what he did that connected those things that put the stuff that he loved to hear with the stuff he loved to do to make money or this, the work he did to make money. And this is Laverne Baker doing Jim Dandy. And that was Laverne Baker doing Jim Dandy, one of Jim Jerry Wexler's productions, along with Ahmet Erdogan at Atlantic Records. And that's where he lands next in the early 50s. Um, Ahmet Erdogan is this son of a Turkish diplomat. 
who uh, he and his brother are massive jazz record collectors, borrows some money from his dentist and starts Atlantic Records and initially puts out quite a variety of jazz and blues records, but it's it's R&B. It's, it's Stick McGee's Drink and Wine Spody O.D. OD that, that hits, and Erdogan follows his muse, which is the greenback dollar, and, and doubles <laughs> down. Uh, Erdogan starts it with a couple, um, the Abramsons, Herb and his wife, whose name... Um, Miriam. See. Miriam, yes. And then... Herb Abramson gets drafted and goes to Korea, so they're looking for somebody else to help out. And they'd already offered Wexler promo gigs. He turned him down. He wanted to be more, do more than just promotions, and asked for a partnership. They declined him flat. But when Abramson gets drafted, Amit calls him again, and Wexler actually gets the deal, which one of the great deals in record history to get to, to buy into Atlantic at that point. Although Wexler certainly had to earn um, the big payoff that he got a decade or decade and a half later. For sure. Um, at that point, it, they weren't a bad label by any means. They were putting out some, some cool stuff. Uh, but the fact of the matter is they, you know, they were, not the Atlantic records that we all know and love until Jerry got there. Not, not to say anything bad about what Ahmet and Herb were, were doing before that, but uh, if you go through a uh, an Atlantic compilation, you can tell things start to change right about the same time in the early fifties when uh, when Jerry gets there. There's there's just uh, perhaps a, a bit of a vision and an energy that uh, that he helps bring to it. Yeah, absolutely. And they were a great team. I think Herb Abramson and Amit Erdogan were not as complimentary of each other as Wexler and Amit were because Amit was the nighttime guy, the night shift. He would come in around noon, might produce a couple records, and then he would hit the clubs. And he becomes this legendary man about town. And eventually, the sort of this, um, you know, his his innate class from his upbringing, you know, brought a certain elegance to to rhythm and blues and rock music that was pretty unprecedented. Whereas Wexler is the roll your sleeves up, show up there first thing in the morning, and start yelling at people that owe you money, <laughs> <laughs> and then he produces some records, and then. You know, he might go out and see a couple shows, but then he goes to bed earlier than Amit. So, yeah, the two of them had this, this chemistry that, that I think um, Herb Abramson never could match. And Herb did come back to Atlantic after his time in Korea, but he and Miriam uh, divorced. And he formed ATCO, which was a subsidiary of Atlantic, and did some big signings, Bobby Darren in particular. But then, then left left the uh, partnership, and I don't know. It's interesting to me. Like I, I was spending a lot of time listening to the Atlantic Rhythm and Blues Singles Collection. It goes oh, from yeah. forty seven to seventy four, I think, and it's really interesting to hear those changes. But for me, that era when it's clearly Amit and Wexler working together and producing so many great records, uh, Big Joe Turner. Uh, Ruth Brown, Laverne Baker, and they're working with a guy named Jesse Stone. He's one of my favorite Let It Roll characters. He pops up in the Kansas City episode. He was a big uh, player in the Kansas City jazz scene at the same time as as Count Basie and Big Joe Turner and others. Then he's there at Atlantic in the late 40s and early 50s. He's the songwriter. He's an arranger. He writes Shake, Rattle, and Roll a whole bunch of other songs. So Jesse Stone should definitely get a lot of attention. There's also a guy named Howard Biggs, who's an Atlantic arranger, brings in the Ravens, um, that, that uh, another power. So it wasn't just Amit and, and Wexler. There was, there was a whole team. And of course, then there's a legendary Tom Dowd and they later bring in Aaron Martin. So they, they um, had a real ability to build a team around themselves. Uh, not, quite what Barry Gordy was able to do, but they, on a smaller scale, did something uh, comparable, I would say. Yeah, cer- certainly uh, maybe set uh, a certain template. Yeah, I, I would, I'd say um, uh, it, it should also, uh, Ahmed also wrote some some really cool stuff. He wrote Mess Around for uh, for Ray Charles. I think it wasn't 60 Minute Man. Uh, what was that? The Clovers 
uh, I, I think he he wrote that for them. So so uh, Ahmet was well, sixty minute man's the dominoes. I don't think it had dom- anything to do with that. I, it was it wasn't Mint Julep, but yeah, it was one of the Clover's hits. Yeah. And now it's driving I me crazy. Remember. Yeah, <laughs> and, and he also spelled his name backwards on on for his songwriting credits a lot. And it's one of those things where I don't think the guy was above putting his name on the credits of a, a song that he didn't write, but he did write indisputably. Everybody agrees he was a legit songwriter and did write some songs. So lots of songs. Um, yeah. So, you know, it's not like Alan Freed showing up on songwriting credits or even Elvis Presley on Heartbreak Hotel. Amit, for the most part, earned his credits. And Wexler actually co-wrote a few. He he wrote some with Clyde McFadder, another one of their great signings. They, they put the first iteration of the Drifters together around Clyde McFadder after they poached him or he had already quit Billy or been fired from Billy Ward and the Dominoes. And, you know, legendary story. And I don't know, for me, the... It's it was a little bit frustrating because I kind of felt like they raced through that early fifties part in this book, but that's just because there's so Agreed. much to cover. Agreed. Yeah, I, I think uh, from the moment that Jerry gets there, there's some really really remarkable things happening. I I wonder. I I think there's a certain narrative that maybe Jerry's trying to tell in the book that has connections that lead all the way up to Muscle Shoals, which really seems to be, and we'll get there, but really seems to be like uh, his pride and joy uh, for the rest of his life, basically. Um, but yeah, he he really sells this, this early part short. Uh, uh, speaking of... of um, uh, radio radio guys like the the one that you just mentioned, Alan Freed. Um, I, I do feel that Jerry Wexler, uh, Ahmet having this like sort of very suave uh, background. Uh, Jerry doesn't Jerry doesn't exactly have that. He's like an no. intellectual, very very smart guy. Uh, very bright, but uh, it it's kind of makes sense that college didn't didn't do a lot for him, uh, and that he you know washed windows with his dad because he's like he's so street. <laughs> yeah, he's he's so incredibly street, and that edge, I think, is uh, what helps get them over with everybody that they're trying to talk to, whether it's artists whether it's, you know, publishers, whether it's, uh, you know, radio men who they're trying to, they get their radios, their, their songs played on the radio. And I can just imagine somebody like Jerry Wexler going into a, uh, a radio station uh, with a bunch of money and uh, like everybody else does, but with an in in added uh, energy and aggression that is yeah. so street that um that Ahmet just really needed that it's the good cop bad cop sort of thing yeah no doubt it was, it was definitely the good cop bad cop and let's go ahead and hear our next song which is uh wilson pickett's land of 1000 dances another jerry wexler production Wilson Pickett doing Land of 1000 Dances. And that's one of the first tracks they cut at Muscle Shoals with Wilson. Wilson had already had hits uh, at recording at Stax for Atlantic, where Jerry had sent him. And then when Wilson wore out his welcome at Stax Records, Jerry took him on down to Muscle Shoals. And that's the track where Jerry Wexler famously took to the studio floor and started doing the jerk to show the rhythm section the exact beat that he wanted. <laughs> and all accounts agree with that story. So, you know... Um, 
But just a let I just have this picture of fifty something Jerry Wexler <laughs> down there <laughs> doing the jerk, <laughs> showing the the crew crew what he wanted. But we need to talk a couple more things. You know, Ray Charles was kind of the big whale that they landed at Atlantic there, and took him. You mentioned the mess around. Took him, and we did the whole Ray Charles episode. Took a little while for Ray to find his sound. Very analogous to Aretha Franklin, one of these kids who's so talented they can do anything. It wasn't until Ray Charles figured out his identity that he really becomes Ray Charles and this great American music legend. And Wexler just had to stand back and let him do it. Wexler totally admits he didn't have a lot to add to the Ray Charles uh, process in the studio. He he knew he was in the presence of genius and just stood back and let the man work, which, again, a lot of producers never learn that lesson. Yeah. But the 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 key thing I think that Erdogan and Wexler were able to do that separates them from their peers in the 40s and 50s. And I'm talking about, you know, the crew at Specialty Records or the Chess Brothers at Chess Records in Chicago is that they were able to not quite do what Barry Gordy did, where he built a whole team of many Barry Gordys, but they were able to find other producer writers and bring them in kind of sequentially. They never had the whole massive stable. I mean, they never had anything equivalent to uh, Holland, Dozier, Holland, uh, you know, and uh, Smokey Robinson going at the same time. But they had Lieber and Stoller, who they bring in in the late 50s, as kind of their first sort of passing of the torch moment. And Lieber and Stoller have the great run with the coasters and the second iteration of the drifters, which was built around Benny King. And then Rudy Lewis uh, uh, took his place as the lead singer. And this is one of the first stories where Wexler, you get a different version of the tale and uh, when you read Wexler's version versus uh, the way, say, the stories told in Burt Burns' tale, and Burt Burns was another songwriter producer who came in after Lieber and Stoller left, and and I'm talking about when Rudy Lewis of the Drifters OD'd the night that before they were supposed to record under the boardwalk, you know, and in the Burt Burns story, it's and Wexler didn't even think twice; he just started getting the group together for the session the next day. I mean, literally dragging people out of the funeral. Um, in Wexler's telling, the union forced him to do it. <laughs> they had already hired a string section, and and you know the, the, they were going to have to pay the union, so they had to do it. Um, and that's it kind of recurring. Yeah. Yeah. Wouldn't be the first time that a that a businessman uh, blames something on on unions or lawyers or. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely, and um, you know, and and also again, they're falling out with Lieber and Stoller, and Lieber and Stoller's telling their attorney, who later becomes Paul McCartney's uh, father-in-law, Tom Eastman, right. advised him to audit the books at Atlantic. And they were just naive kids and didn't think anything of it. Sure, well, you know, I'll go ahead and audit the books. And it comes out that Atlantic owes them $18,000. And, you know, Wexler tells him, well, you can either have the $18,000 and never work with us again, or you cannot have the $18,000 and not work with us again. And they end up not getting the $18,000 and not getting to work with Atlantic again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, um, I... I do, and this could be very naive, but I do find myself having sympathy for pretty much any any record label because it's got to be so hard uh, to to keep any money. Apparently, they hardly ever had any cash on hand, and I believe them because they were paying all these record guys under the books all the time. Yeah. Um, so I I I do. Not that it's right to to not pay people what they're owed, but I think there there are uh, some finances that uh, it's impossible to keep on the books and keep a successful uh, record label going to this day. By the way, <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, game the game it has not changed. The, the game hasn't, yeah, the game hasn't changed at all. But uh, it, it's so funny to me that of all the times in the book where Jerry doesn't seem exactly forthcoming about this, he's incredibly forthcoming. He doesn't deny that the audit was correct. He's just like $18,000. Come on. <laughs> you, guys, <laughs> you guys are making money. What, what, what's the problem here? The $18,000, I bet a lot of it went to uh, radio stations. 
entirely possible. I mean, payola was just a, a fact of the business, and it wasn't illegal when they started doing it. It was pretty arbitrarily made illegal in the late fifties. Um, then he, you know, they. So we've we've had the 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 Wexler and Erdogan era in the early fifties, and then we have the Lieber and Stoller era, Atlantic, under the supervision of Jerry Wexler. Uh, you know, in the late fifties kind of the classic Brill building period. Lieber and Stoller wrote a lot of the songs themselves, but they also brought in songwriters like Doc Pomus and Mort Schumann, like Goffin and King, to write some of the most famous songs. Then they have the falling out with Lieber and Stoller. Burt Burns then becomes sort of their surrogate producer and songwriter, and he's he's kind of dominant during the Solomon Burke period in the early 60s. Many A great songwriter in his own right, so it keeps Atlantic going. They also, you know, Bobby Darren, as I mentioned, was brought in by Herb Abramson. And so they have this period in the late 50s where Bobby Darren and Ray Charles are carrying the label. Those guys both leave around the turn of the decade. And so Burns kind of saves the day with Solomon Burke and keeps him going. But then there's another falling out. They spin off a record company that Burns controls, Bang Records. And, you know, in Burns' book and movie, there's this very dramatic tale where they they literally sit down with mafiosos like Morris Levy uh, of Roulette Records, who's a total villain in many stories, is on the Atlantic side, and they're going to muscle Burt Burns out of his record label. Burt Burns shows up with like the acting boss of the Genovese family, who happens to have the yacht next to his, and scares off Wexler and Morris Levy. Wexler doesn't tell that tale at all. He just mentions that they had a dispute about the publishing and I didn't go to the guy's funeral. <laughs> yeah, it's it's kind of like a nuclear arms race. You you've got a mob guy, we've got a bigger mob guy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, that a dramatic dramatic legendary meeting and they have another legendary meeting with some of the same characters around the same time that, you know, Lieber and Stoller left Atlantic form Redbird records with this guy, George Goldner, who's this, another great record man and total uh, bad guy in a lot of stories that particularly the Frankie Lyman story and Eastman and Goldner sit, sit down. Lee Eastman's their lawyer, Lieber and Stoller, Lee Eastman and George Goldner come from Redbird records. They want to merge with Atlantic or sell out to Atlantic and Wexler and Ahmet Erdogan show up and somehow the whole meeting goes wrong. The merger is out of the question. And Wexler and Amit then have this not quite a falling out, but there's definitely a distance put between them because Amit somehow comes away with the meeting with the idea that Wexler wanted to buy him out and squeeze him out. So this fissure between Wexler and Amit just builds to this period. And let's take a quick break from our and hear from our sponsors. When we come back, we'll talk about Wexler's role in bringing in Stacks records and then, of course, the great Aretha Franklin era. Wexler in this period, he's like a trapeze artist. You know, he he kind of runs out of steam, brings in Lieber and Stoller, runs them off. They lose Bobby Darren and Ray Charles, brings in Burt Burns and Solomon Burks. That keeps him going. And then just when that's all falling apart, he um, gets word from some, some of his connections in the South that there's this little label in Memphis that's printing up a whole bunch of stuff. He knows a pressing plant operator, Buster Williams, who tells him, hey, you know, this, this uh, label's satellite, I think they were still called at the time, has, has a hit. And they, you know, Atlantic licenses it and signs this deal that, that turns out gives Atlantic a lot of uh, stake in Stax Records. And when they hit again with Carla Thomas's G Wiz, uh, he's Wexler really takes notice, goes down there personally, uh, tries to have dinner with Rufus and Carla Thomas, father daughter duo. You couldn't eat, you couldn't have a meal together if if you were black folks and white folks in Memphis at that time. And the cops literally came to his hotel room because he had had them up to his room along with um, the stewards of Stacks Records for dinner. It's just hard to fathom the level of BS people had to put up with in that era in a place like Memphis. And, you know, yeah, it is. Um, it's 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 pretty disgusting, but uh, it's it's it was very uh, Rufus and Carla would have would have been used to it. Uh, and yeah. And Jerry, Jerry probably uh, had some idea. He he'd been around for a little while, going going to places down south. But every time you hear about about stories like this, it's just it doesn't 
make any sense. And I'm glad it doesn't make any sense. I'm yeah. glad we don't have to live in a world where we have to navigate that stuff. We've just got other things to navigate. Yeah, we, we're getting new challenges every day, but um, not uh, we haven't seen Jim Crow reimposed, thank God. Um, but, but Wexler presses on. He learns a lot from Stack's records that, you know, he, he describes the New York scene. He feels like he was out of inspiration. The arrangers were out of ideas. The songwriters were out of material and the session players were out of licks. And so when he goes to Memphis and he hears the songs that say Isaac Hayes and David Porter are writing, he hears the kind of arrangements that Booker T and the MGs were putting together without written arrangements, what they called head arrangements, just the way a rock band jams together. Essentially Um, it totally recharged him and, you know, has the, the, not only is he, distributing records made by Stax with people like Otis Redding. Actually, Wexler claims credit for sending Otis Redding to Stax. So the guy, um, Joe Galkin, another one of his New York contacts who was, you know, working in Atlanta and all over the South um, as a record promoter, you know, knew about Otis Redding and, and said, hey, you need to finance a session for this guy, Johnny Jenkins, and who's who's also got a singer turns out to be otis redding so he he takes credit for bringing otis redding into stacks which mm, i think may be fair then he brings wilson pickett down to stacks and uh, you know puts him together with steve cropper tells him to write songs together and they and they cut you know in the midnight hour six three four five seven eight nine definitely works although pickett can't get along with the crew at Saks, and after he has his big hits, then you know, uh, is even more unbearable. And, and they only end up doing two sessions, and that's when the Muscle Shoals things also got to mention Sam and Dave, a crew that Wexler discovered in, in Miami, signed him to Atlantic, but sends him down to Stacks, where they become the vehicle for the Hayes Porter songwriting team and, and production team backed by the MGs and the Memphis Horn. So, you know. Tons of great music, and, and Wexler's involved. He's not directly producing, but he's overseeing this stuff. But when Wex, when Pickett gets driven out of Memphis, that's when um, Wexler takes him down to Muscle Shoals. Percy Sledge, When a Man Loves a Woman, was kind of the first hit that Atlantic distributed for Rick Hall and, and the crew at the Fame Studios. So when they take Wilson down to Muscle Shoals, that's when Land of a Thousand Dances Mustang, Sally, etc. And then when Aretha Franklin puts the word out that she's ready to leave Columbia and wants to go to Atlanta, he knows where to take her. And that's where the Rick Hall's version of the story and the Jerry Wexler's version of the story, actually, they don't really disagree on what happened in that first session, that they cut a great track, then there's a fight. Rick Hall and, and Aretha Franklin's husband, Ted White, get into a fist fight. White and Aretha leave. Muscle Shoals don't come back. Wexler has to then take the poaches of the fame rhythm section, takes them to New York. And so, I don't know, how do you score the whole... Because in the Rick Hall story, Wexler's definitely the main bad guy. Wexler doesn't quite see, see it that way. He's, he felt like Hall was mis, taking advantage of the fame guys. I don't know, how do you score this one? Uh, well, you know, uh, I'm always for the little guy, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, I, you know, recall, uh, from, from the documentary, it seems like he, he was, a uh, he, he drove his, his people pretty hard as did, uh, Jerry Wexler. Uh, but he seemed to have uh, a vision for everybody that he was working with that included everyone he was working with. Whereas, uh, uh, you know, Jer- Jerry, uh, Atlantic Records, they didn't mind poaching. <laughs> ever. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they'd throw people overboard if they were done with them, you know. It's, it's, it's true. It just happened over and over again. So, um yeah, I, I tend to to believe that uh, that uh, Jerry Jerry saw Rick Hall in the studio as uh, as like his competition, sort of. Um, who knows? Maybe uh, in that first Aretha session, I'm not sure how much Jerry is is doing in that particular session, but certainly. 
afterwards when Rick Hall is gone, uh, uh, they they do a, a lot together. Um, but Jerry always has somebody in the room with him that uh, that is doing a lot of work, whether it's uh, whether it's Tom Dowd or whether it's Rick Hall or, you know, Burt King Burns, Curtis, King Curtis. Yeah, Burt exactly. Uh, any any number of people. And that that's not to take anything away from him. I think uh, Jerry uh, was a great, great collaborator, but he was also. Uh, uh, a house wrecker. <laughs> <laughs> yep, I think I think that's a fair way to put it. But his run with Aretha Franklin is clearly the jewel in his crown. I mean, Hall of Famer, even if he had never met Aretha Franklin, but the fact that he was the facilitator for Aretha Franklin's great run of classic singles and albums at Atlantic. It's hard to argue with that. I mean, that is Mount Olympus level stuff, and and putting her together with the Fame Rhythm Section, also putting her together with King Curtis, who before he was tragically murdered, was the musical director of her road band, and you know, putting things together like the Live at the Fillmore West album. And it's interesting to me that Wexler, he talks about both, like when when he brought Otis Redding and the MGs to the Monterey Pop Festival, he was very nervous about how Redding would do and get over with the quote-unquote love crowd in Monterey. And he was also very nervous about how Aretha would do at the Fillmore West in San Francisco. And in both cases, the hippies exceeded his expectations and totally got it and were just on fire with the music. And it's also interesting that Wexler kind of kicks himself for having pushed Aretha to record things like The Weight by Robbie Robertson of the band. What did you make of his theory that R&B audiences just could not get into that kind of hippie lyricism? Well, I think it's I think it's somewhat untrue. I mean, uh, you know, uh, a clear refutation is everything that George Clinton ever did. But um, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but I, I, I think uh there's there's something to it. Um, Jerry, I, it doesn't seem like he had an awful lot of respect for for the uh, the hippie movement. Um, it, it seemed to be something he couldn't quite get a grasp on. So something that he was proud of, something that he was really into, uh, maybe he had a hard time believing that uh, that that crowd of of use were were really gonna uh adhere to it but uh of course they're they're going to it's aretha franklin it's it's uh otis redding i mean uh you know what's what's more joyful than than hearing them on stage you're already on you know uh shrooms and and lsd and whatever else (laughs) you're pretty happy camper when they come up on stage yeah no doubt about that and it's interesting you know wexler's disdain for slash lack of appreciation of um White Rock is a theme that's going to be a, a big part of the Atlantic Records story. But let's, Seth tells me it's time to cue. So let's hear uh, Aretha Franklin's You Make Me Feel Like a Natural Woman. On the morning rain, I used to feel so uninspired. And when I knew I had to face another day. that was Aretha Franklin doing You Make Me Feel Like a Natural Woman, a a Goffin and King number that Wexler claimed he commissioned. I think he claims he yelled the song title out of the car window at the pair, or maybe it was just (laughs) at Goffin and and suggested the idea. Can't argue with the results, though. And and if he did come up with a song title, you know, that, uh, to me, earns a songwriting co-credit for sure. But there's this whole undercurrent in this period. And Wexler, I 
I'm blanking on whether or not he mentions that he's the guy who turned down licensing the Beatles' first couple of releases for Atlantic. He just thought they were totally derivative, had a similar verdict on the Rolling Stones, um, although I don't think Atlantic ever had a shot at signing the Stones. But you know, one thing that happens in the 60s is that Ahmet signs Sonny and Cher, who naturally should have you know Sonny Bono was a was a protege of Phil Spector who had briefly worked at Atlantic and Wexler kind of glides over that too there's a chapter about Phil Spector's time at Atlantic but Wexler doesn't mention anything about um Wexler poaching a song and stealing the crystals you know (laughs) and running away and basically fleecing them for you know six months of 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 a salary and all he had to show for it was he ruined the, the original version of twist and shout uh and made it exactly not what burt burns had in mind <laughs> burt burns had to go back and produce the isley brothers version himself to do it right but you know amit signed sunny and share massively successful and wexler you know claims that he's the guy who signed vanilla fudge Erdogan brings in uh, the Little Rascals, who later become just the Rascals, all massively successful and and pretty credible acts, at least at the beginning, although Wexler didn't have anything to do with them after he signed them. And this continues all the way up to Led Zeppelin, like Burt Burns had discovered Jimmy Page when he went over to England on the same track trips where he recorded Van Morrison and... You know, Wexler kept in touch with Jimmy Page, and when Jimmy Page put Led Zeppelin together, Wexler and Erdogan, you know, absolutely won the bidding war uh, for them and, you know, massively successful. But it, I think this disdain, they also signed Cream, another incredibly successful white rock group that Wexler had nothing to do with. And he says, you know, I did not know or care to learn how to produce a self-contained band. For Wexler, it was all about those session pros who can cut it, you know, the first time, every time, the professional songwriters who are going to, you know, presumably have a better chance of bringing you a hit than than the in-house songwriter for a band. And so, you know, he's wedded to that assembly line model that Atlantic had been one of the pioneers of that Motown and Phil Spector and others just was not ready for that Bob Dylan Beatles sort of self-contained band era. And that leads to what he considered one of the biggest mistakes of his career, where he just endlessly pushes Erdogan to sell out and they do sell out for like 17.5 million in 67 to Warner arts. And it's, it's, yeah, it's just staggering how much money they left on the table if they had just waited another year or two you know once they had led zeppelin and the rolling stones they could they could have become a major label on their own i mean it's it's you know what do you say about that who you know who who can who can know exactly what what would have been but uh man i i tell you i uh, I do think maybe that sort of paved the way for uh, Motown to r- really kick it into another gear as uh, as Atlantic Records is winding down, whether they should have or not. Uh, Motown is is winding up, and uh, you know they're they're sort of in their heyday but they haven't kicked it they still haven't kicked it into that next notch where uh you've got like marvin Gaye doing what's going on and and uh, stevie wonders run of uh of albums and and the jackson five and they become this big conglomerate they start making movies and stuff um and Ahmet and Jerry Wexler, for as ambitious as they are, they they can't see that far down. Um, and yeah, to sell to sell Atlantic Records uh, with the pedigree that Atlantic had at the time seems crazy. Although I do kind of get it because until Aretha comes, uh, Atlantic itself was having a hard time producing anything. They were doing lots of distribution stuff and things that were like Atlantic adjacent that was keeping them above water. Um, but I, I I would imagine, you know, they were still in that rock and roll as a fad thing. And, yeah. 
you know. Uh, I, think, I think that's the main thing is that he didn't have any faith that Sonny and Cher, Vanilla Fudge, or the Rascals. And, and you know, looking back, it's easy to devalue those groups. But at the time, those were A-list acts, particularly the Rascals. And, you know, I just don't think he had faith. He, I mean, and who can blame me? He could not see what was coming with the rock music revolution of no. the early 70s. And it ended up working out. I mean, they signed to Warner Brothers. They sell out to Warner Brothers Seven Arts. But fortunately, Warner Seven Arts sells out and WEA is formed. And there's a real benevolent management at at warner that lets warner brothers keep going with uh joe smith and oh and i'm blanking on the, the excellent record man that mo austin mo austin yes and and then atlantic with erdogan and you know bring in more and more david geffen gets in the picture and massively successful so it's it's not like atlantic was in bad hands they they fit in well in this conglomerate and Ahmet Erdogan in particular thrived but Wexler was kind of a fish out of water and he makes this decision to move to Miami but actually we need to go back because we we left out the stacks double cross and this is oh, when yeah. <laughs> when they sell to Warner Brothers that's when the contracts with stacks are gone through and it turns out that Atlantic owned the stacks catalog which is not something that Wexler and Jim Stewart had agreed to. They hadn't even discussed it. It was in the contract. And Wexler claims that it was lawyers, bad, naughty, evil lawyers who put that in there. <laughs> and he knew nothing about it. How do you write that story? I just don't buy it, Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> I just I just don't buy it, especially when you've got you've put this scheme together to get uh, Otis Redding signed to uh, to Stacks records uh that's a pretty you know nice thing you're doing to just deliver otis redding to them like that um unless you know that you own you know all the masters that you own you know uh that that sam and dave are not actually you know with stacks they're actually staying with you um, and I think there there was some initial thought that he was going to send Aretha down there. Yeah, that was his first um, idea. He was going to sign Aretha to Stacks, and Jim Stewart didn't want any part of that. Um, you know, so uh, totally interesting what what could have been, but clearly fate worked out uh, in everybody's favor the way things happened. But yeah, I got to score that one for Jim Stewart too. That that it just reeks of BS. Uh, yeah. What, you know, <laughs> Wexler's story is just not plausible there. Um, and then around just a little later, there's this sort of pivotal event. But Steph tells me I got to cue our last song first. And so let's hear Willie Nelson's Sad Songs and Waltzes. When we come back, we'll hear about a major turning point in Jerry Wexler's life. about you A true song as real but you've no need to fear it Cause no one will hear it Cause sad songs and waltzes Aren't selling this year I'll tell all about and that was Willie Nelson's sad song and waltzes from, uh, I think, his second Atlantic album, Shotgun Willie. And yeah, big swerve there to go from Aretha Franklin and uh, Laverne Baker and Wilson Pickett to Willie Nelson. But it's all American Roots music, and, and Jerry Wexler was very hip to the Austin scene that was coming up. He signed Doug Sam as well as Willie Nelson and and starts an Atlantic uh, country imprint in the early 70s doesn't succeed neither of those records hit although he does lay the groundwork for willie nelson you know those albums are so great and uh really yeah. laid the groundwork for willie's success on columbia and there was probably no chance that atlantic was going to succeed 
in country radio. They just did not have a network or whatever. And but you can't argue with Jerry's talent picking. He 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 picked the right guys, but um, you know the the timing was wrong. But let's go back to 1968 and talk about the the Natra conference. And this is a radio, uh, basically a DJs association, mostly black DJs. And they have this big confab in Miami in 1968. 68, of course, is the year uh, Martin Luther King was assassinated and racial tension is on full boil at that point and wexler basically has to flee for his life after king curtis warns him that there's death death threats and that had to be really disorienting and upsetting for wexler and some other you know white uh record execs were beaten there was a lot of extortion going on what's your take on that whole you know tension explosion well well, uh, you know, I, you know, I'm never going to advocate for violence. Uh, however, um, all these guys were were screwing over their their black artists <laughs> quite a bit. And you know, I when I think about uh, a record label like Atlantic, I think about uh, TV networks like Fox and UPN and WB. Uh, which I, I don't think are around anymore. But no. <clears throat> at the very beginning, they give, um, you know, they're in, you know, desperate situations and they and they give opportunities um, to underserved markets, uh, mainly, mainly black folks. And, you know, at first there's all these, you know, black shows. Um, but as soon as they start to, you know, really get things cooking, um, and get more resources and, you know, and get a wider audience. They don't need the, the black folks as much anymore. And just almost in inherent possibly to the economic system, it just gets wider and wider and wider. And that's what happened with Atlantic records. They never completely abandoned, um, uh, black musicians, um, but uh, but you know there there got to be a lot more Led Zeppelins than than there were uh, you know Clarence Carters after a while. Yeah, um, I mean Crosby, Stills and Nash, and Crosby, Stills, yeah. Nash and Young moved a lot of units. And, yeah, and they're not going to be screwing over uh, Led Zeppelin and the Rolling Stones the way they might have with you know Ruth Brown. Yeah, yeah, and, uh, Led Zeppelin and the Rolling Stones were veteran music biz people by that point that had been screwed over <laughs> and, and were, were ready for for you know they were they were ready to handle themselves by that point so yeah I, you know um yeah I, I i wouldn't want i don't think that it was necessarily deserved but it was it was a reckoning it was it sort of inevitable um and one of the sort of long-term let it roll stories is the increasing power in the industry on the part of black record executives and black artists and you know the story of al bell at Saks, i think is very illustrative he he comes in under jim stewart and and becomes the main guy at Saks and saves the day and brings Saks back even after atlantic stole their whole catalog but in the process of having to deal with you know even Stax records is getting is getting bombarded by goons coming out of the community in memphis they bring in some black muscle from new york who essentially kind of you know becomes a problem in-house yeah they they muscle jim stewart out but at the end of the day it's the banks that took them out (laughs) yeah yeah for (laughs) sure you know for you know as much of a threat as you may think uh the the black radicals are it turns out that uh the 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 southern bankers were (laughs) still (laughs) still evil threats yeah yeah still evil and wily but a few more big credits i want to mention before we wrap this up because you know uh jerry wexler was responsible for dusty springfield's from dusty and memphis album sent him down to send her down to american studios in memphis which chip moment who had originally been the number two guy at stacks had formed his own studio and it's right in there competing you know he produces elvis's uh comeback album and you know right in there competing with the stacks crew and the muscle shoals crew uh you know doing some great stuff there in american studios he discovers Dwayne allman who first uh shows up 
down in Muscle Shoals and cuts Hey Jude with Wilson Pickett and, you know, helps Dwayne get the Almond Brothers together and helps um, Otis Redding's manager put together Capricorn Records to do that. Uh, also um, brings in Dr. John, produces a run of those, is way into Delaney and Bonnie. I think I only did one album with Delaney and Bonnie. They had a weird career mm-hmm. where they hopped from record label to record label, but very much on the cutting edge of rock in the early 70s and Wexler's right in the thick of it also Donny Hathaway one of the the I think one of the last great R&B artists on Atlantic so you know um it's hard to argue with Wexler's run he he also tries to put together a house band in Miami led by Jim Dickinson called the Dixie Flyers they do they do cut some sterling records but Miami and drugs in this period <laughs> 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 that period yeah well yeah <laughs> miami and drugs period um but, but you know definitely produce some casualties there eventually he's pushed out of atlantic um, but even then has uh, some major uh production success post-atlantic like bob dylan's slow, slow train coming which i always wrote off because this was bob dylan's kind of strange fervent christian period but if you go back and listen to those records i think musically pretty powerful and they were hits and they won Grammys and the whole bit. So pretty good capstone to Wexler's career. What are your final thoughts on Jerry Wexler? Is he devil angel? Oh, definitely both. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I think uh, ultimately the, the history of American popular music is a lot poorer without his contributions. And in, <laughs> I think he goes to lengths to let you know just how much sweat equity he put into this music. Um, uh, every day he was working real hard for his artists in the studio, um, you know, out out in the radio stations. Um, he, he was just, you know, keeping his ears to the ground all the time. Uh, this, this guy was a catalyst, really. Um, so, so you can't, you can't, uh, knock anything he did. I think maybe his most lasting contribution is, uh, he's so proud of, of Muscle Shoals and that was a real rebirth for him. And, uh, you know, he was able to finally get Wilson Pickett the hits that he, that, uh, he deserved and Aretha Franklin just, you know, soared after that and you can tell that for the rest of Jerry's career he takes this muscle shoals approach that that he got going with those two artists uh to other aspects of of pop music and it really has stuck around that particular sound that you hear on slow train coming or shotgun willie or you know any 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 number of things i think of like all the stuff that eric clapton did after yep. you know derek and the dominoes or bonnie Raitt. By Tom Dow. yeah yeah bonnie Raitt, or even up to today uh, uh what's his name the um the uh new slide player the new Dwayne. um <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> um yeah that sound uh that muscle show sound has really stuck around and to the effect that when people think of soul today that's the sound they think of more than motown maybe more than yeah more than maybe more than stacks and probably at the same level with james brown yeah yeah you might be right you might be right that that has been an incredibly uh, long-lasting uh, sound. I mean, it's had its ups and downs. It wasn't so big, say, in the new wave era in the early 80s. But, um, yeah, amazingly resilient sound. And so, uh, for Brooks Long, I'm Nate Wilcox. We've been discussing Rhythm and the Blues, A Life in American Music by Jerry Wexler and David Ritz, part of our David Ritz Book Club. Who are we going to talk about next time? Oh, that's a good question. Um, man, we, we could do... Uh good number of folks here yeah there's uh, walter yetnikoff rick james grandmaster flash those are all let's let's uh let's stick with the music execs let's let's get into yetnikoff 
All right. So sorry, Steph. She was lobbying for Rick James over here. But yeah, Walter Yetnikoff. That's going to be an interesting one. So for Brooks Long, I'm Nate Wilcox. And thanks for listening. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. On Monday, Nate welcomes Emily Bingham to discuss her book, My Old Kentucky Home, and the strands of institutional mythology Kentucky has woven around Stephen Foster's song. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.